that it's all filled up Cause love makes the world go round But it's money that greases the wheel Yeah, love makes the world go round But it's money that greases the wheel Now take that old maid She lives by herself With nothing but houses and land all of a sudden, she ups and gets married to a big-eyed, handsome man. Cause love makes the world go round, but it's money that greases the wheel. Yeah, love makes it is Alley Audiovision with Ralph Alley and Clark Yarrington. Hello, dear friends. In this episode, taking place in 1965, Ralph's solo career takes off and blossoms. Here's Ralph. I r- remember when we ended Clark that I was heading west for parts unknown. I had no idea where I was going. I had just more or less quit my job and I really have always had a job and it was a strange feeling. I was unemployed at the moment but the other thing is I had a lot of projects that were coming my way because the local paper, especially the Anchorage News, um, which then was a morning paper, was publishing a lot of my work. And I asked this reporter named Beverly uh, Eisenson, I think that was her name, to uh, not put my name in there in her articles. I just didn't want to cause any more trouble because I kept getting crank calls. And Anchorage in those days, prior to the quake, and maybe just after, had a lot of people had set up these regimes of which they were in total control. There were the architects who always wanted to be the architects, and there were the oil painters who always had the oil painting shows, and there were musicians too. There were some great talent up there, but there was some not very good talent as well. Uh, I could used to think some of the people who are oil painters, they thought that the more you gooped on those canvases, the more expensive, <laughs> the more money they could charge for it. And some of it was pretty awful, but some of the uh, artists up there were just truly good. And uh, I wish now that I had some of those pieces in my own collections, which I don't really, or really stopped collecting years ago because after a while, you've got to get rid of it all. Not having heirs or anyone to give it to, I just thought, well, maybe this is really not a good place to go. But one, there were a couple of of uh, artists up there that I wish I had collected. And one was A.E. Parks, uh, Betty Parks. I thought she was just fabulous. And I loved her work. I still think about it now and then. I'm kind of digressing, but Anchorage had one great asset that I think gave it an international appeal, and that was being the crossroads between Europe and the Orient and the United and the Lower 48. From them, there were some excellent artisans as as not oil painters, but like people who did murals and house painting. And there were some great chefs up there that had little restaurants, and the food was just outstanding. And I think that gave Anchorage a certain elan that uh, you don't find in cities of that size. And there were always foreign people. There were stewardesses, of course, 
and stewards who were overnighting or overweeking up there. And the skiing was always a draw to a lot of those people. So Anchorage still had the established regimes, the power brokers, the bankers, the social queens and kings. And at the time of the quake and thereafter, all of that began to topple and crumble. I was getting a lot of attention. I would call it not fame, but being very, or conspicuous would be, I think, a better word that really disrupted a lot of people. I got calls, people could find me, and were just hateful. Or if I was asked to go give a talk, people would come up with this kind of attitude. You think you're so smart, that kind of thing. And I never think anything of that kind. But there's this edge that I was always fighting for a while, and I I tell people about that, and they'd say, well, you're paranoid, and they'd go around with me, and they said, no, you're not. <laughs> it's amazing. But anyway, I was kept receiving calls or like that, and the phone was always ringing, and the phone rang at, uh, I was trying to turn work out in the Fru-Fru house where I lived on 15th, and needed to leave there because I had no room for anything. And uh, the person who called first was this man that was a friend of Bill Manley's, and I guess Bill told him I had quit. And he asked me if I could have lunch with him, that he had set up an office in the Providence Hospital, and this is the old one on L Street, and I don't know if it's, I don't believe it stands anymore. Uh, It's on 9th and on the west side of 9th and L. And uh, he said that he wanted lunch. He needed to talk to me at the Harbor House, which was down, I think it was on I Street, about a block or so down down from, um, maybe a block on the other side of the park strip or two on I. But anyway, I met him there. And he told me that he had this couple who wanted to have me as their architect. And I went through that stuff that I'm not a registered architect. I said, I don't care about that. He, he says, these people know you, they know people who know you, and they want you as their architect. And he said that it is... Was that for a house? Yes, for a house. And then he started talking. Uh, he said, this couple came to me to contact you, and it's the people whose house in Turnigan fell on their two boys. And um, he said that they were very reactionary to that and they wanted to raise their remaining or their surviving three children in a place far away from Blue Clay. And he said they bought acreage out on C Street, about 48th, and um, he says, uh, I will arrange the meeting, you and, and the uh, Meads. So we did that, and we met, and we liked each other, And uh, but liking them was um, not the premise of the whole thing. The premise was if I could provide services for them for what they wanted. And uh, we talked, and uh, we got together, and actually we signed an agreement, and I started designing. And But in the meantime, when this happened, I did move into this office in Providence Hospital, and it was pretty roomy. I, it was, I don't know, maybe it was a surgical room or something. 
<laughs> they just put, had all kinds of businesses in there that they put in different wards, I guess. <laughs> and he was right, there was a lot of room. And I really liked that because that's one thing I didn't have. What happened, I was going with this gal, Jack did not like, I don't know why, she was a nice gal. Uh, she thought she, she was a little arrogant or snippy or something, but she really wasn't or wasn't around me. He told me not to have her come up there anymore. And I said, Jack. Well, that was weird. This is, this is going to put a strain on my being here because if I'm holding up my side of the bargain here and and uh, and she can damn well come up here if she wants to. And he says, well, I just don't want her here. And I says, well, then I'm gone. No, 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 don't, don't, don't go. And anyway, I just went on about my business and did what I needed to do. And when I, the phone rang and his voice says, Ralph? Yes. And he says, this is Art Bunnell. And uh, he says, so what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm doing what I always do. I'm drafting away. And he says, can you, can you come and see me right now? And I, so I did. And he was on top of a, an apartment building. I think it was on N Street, which is west of L. It was an apartment that ran east-west Clark, and it was maybe almost looked down 8th, somewhere in there. And it was three stories, and it had this penthouse on top and this office, and it was elegant. High ceilings, uh, the doors in there were teak, and they were solid teak, eight feet high, a lot of glass, uh, a big courtyard separated the uh, offices from the penthouse, which was more west than we were. We were more toward the street. But it was so wonderful up there. It was a gorgeous uh, atmosphere to to work in. Uh, the treetops away from street noise, which I really like, and quiet. So I didn't have an office and I needed space. And he said, look, I'll be respective of your time, Ralph, but I'll help you and you can help me. And we'll try to share the expenses here the best we can, you can. He says, let's get started. So I moved in. So I'm confused about the timeline here. This this uh, office was um, was before the old uh, hospital office or? After, just after. Okay. It happened immediately when I told Jack that I was leaving, and uh, uh, the phone rang and and oh, I see. Okay, called me. So I I left Providence Hospital, and and actually I didn't like that place. If you've been in hospitals, that's what it was like. It was it was a hospital, but this place was magnificent, and it was the kind of thing that I think architects aspire to have their offices like. It was better than any office I had been in, but it was wonderful and had room, conference rooms, a lot of space, its own bathrooms. This The people who own that building, I don't know what he did, but I do know that she was a partner in the design craft. And I don't know if that is still operating up there in Anchorage, but it used to um, uh, vend Danish furniture and dishes, and uh, people always looked at that as being a go-to place whenever they needed something better than what you could usually get at Nerlands or somewhere, or different, I should say, not better. It's not there anymore, not since maybe the late 80s or early 90s, and um, uh, yeah, it was um, it was too good for us. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> at that time, they were right at the top of Roaming Hill, uh, almost at the end of Hillcrest. I'm not even sure that West Hillcrest didn't kind of dive into it or was or beside it, but uh, that's where they were. And then they moved over there off, was it Fireweed or... It was it was their own building. It, uh, it could have been the next Northern Lights. It could have been one of those two. I can't remember it. The uh, thing that I was doing there was in this wonderful place is working day and night. And it just, it, it was actually a wonderful place to be and, uh, and to work. And I've always worked nights and I've always worked all day. And I, uh, I've always been a person who's never really needed a lot of sleep. So it was just ideal. I looked in the front office and in walks this man. It was my client whose house rolled over his kids during the quake, just, just the doctor himself. And I went up and we got in the conference room and he just started uh, weeping. And he said that this has taken a great toll on her family. And, and uh, he just wanted me to realize that sometimes he'd never be at their best. And I would be as understanding as I could of that. And I thought that was quite nice of him to do because oftentimes clients, and you've probably experienced this, um, go after their architects sometimes as if <laughs> you are foisting something on them they don't want and they react that way. But that isn't really the case. I, at least for me, I've always tried to do what they want the best I can. And, but he did forewarn me that uh, there were some instabilities there and uh, because of this tragedy and that sometimes that I would have to endure them not being there. Actually, he got quite tearful and was grieving because sometimes he could barely talk. I did start the house with with them and it was finished. Uh, I did, uh, I think, three structures for them. Uh, there was the main house and uh, Clark, the site was kind of fascinating. It reminded me of kind of what you'd think Huckleberry Finn would be, but it had this kind of flat uh, scrub spruce all over the place. Um, but it also had other nice growth, too. Beside that, there was uh, birch and aspens and the scrub spruce, which I think is pretty typical of Anchorage. But it was, in those days, none of that was high like it is now. The weather has warmed up. And when I've been in Anchorage, these trees that were just little are just huge. And it was kind of a low-level growth all through there. And I always thought of it as being kind of wood, like rafting country or something. I kind of designed the house with that in, intent. I, I always thought it was interesting that there was a sizable creek that went across the south edge of that property. And if they were trying to keep their kids out of danger, I, I'm not sure I would have bought it for my children, but uh, uh, it, it was there and it interested me. And I thought it was kind of fascinating. The whole house fanned out and looked toward the creek area and the south sunlight, which I always um, thought was important in Anchorage. I think this is a house you told me about before, and it's not there anymore. It would be fascinating to see some photos of what that site looked like, because I think now it's probably like that there's nothing there. You know, it's just been kind of like flattened and leveled out, and there's uh, some parking lots and some um, inexpensive 200-room hotels type of thing in the same place. Well, there were, in the golden days there, there was the house uh, for their three children and themselves. And it had a huge glassed 
greenhouse that stuck out on the south side that had uh, ornamental mullions that uh, the glass fit into, which was kind of a spectacular thing to see from the house itself through that to the south. There was also like a four-car garage. Uh, they had two collector cars, and then they each had their own cars. One was kind of like a Wagoneer or a Suburban or something, and he had a car for uh, going to the office. And then they had this English Roadster that was white. It was a beautiful thing, uh, very flowing lines and antique. And uh, I often wanted to drive that. I never got around to it. It just was a thrilling visual for me to see that car. As life progressed, I went back to the uh, before, actually this happened before I moved uh, to the End Street place. I got a phone call at the hospital and it was uh, in the Providence Hospital place. And it was this, just a barrage of words I couldn't understand over the phone. And I got attuned to it. It was um, just really, it was English from England. And uh, you have to attune your ears whenever you uh, and it helps to see the person when they're talking to you. But this was over the telephone. The guy said his name was Gaway, and he had seen stuff in the, he called it the blather, which I guess is the paper, and the daily <laughs> blather, and, uh, and wanted to talk to me. And so I said, okay, let's, let's talk. And he had a, an apartment in the Knick Arms, which was more north a few blocks from Providence Hospital, not too many, like three. And uh, so we yeah, arranged to go to the corner of Sixth. Is it Sixth? Yeah, that's one building that we're talking about that is still there. Oh, well, my wife's dad was and Manley were partners in putting that together. That was, and they, and actually, she lives some, a couple of years in that building on the fifth floor, I think she said. Well, listen, Ralph, do you mind if we, um, take a brief pause here it's our one-third break already i've been talking all that time my gosh okay center segment of Alley Audiovision, Ralph and three colleagues travel to Valdez in an attempt to talk the local leaders into not rebuilding the town in the way that it was rebuilt. Post-64 quake and tragedy strikes close to home, this time not involving Ralph. So I, uh, Gary and I got together for dinner and uh, it, it was better talking to his face because I could read his lips as well. And uh, uh, he was interested in what they were going to do to Valdez. And in earlier uh, editions of these podcasts, I told you about going there in 1959. And during the quake, there was a lot of destruction to it. And he said that the, he called them the Caw 
of engineers, engineers, I guess, the Corps of Engineers have come up with this plan. He's, he says it looks like an x-ray of a rib cage. And he says it's very rigid and they're moving uh, Valdez to the north side of uh, Resurrection Bay and taking it off the end. And he says, this just can't be done, he says. <laughs> and he says, us architects must do something. And he says, I'm, I'm going to, I, I know people named Waka there who have a lot of influence. And I said, well, how well do you know Waka? And he says, well, I've met him once. <laughs> and, and he says, uh, I'm going to take a jaunt there and I want you to go. And I said, sure, I'll go. And, uh, you know, before we've talked about this, I, I don't have a lot of faith in being able to turn the tide on doing anything that's uh, quick and dirty and fast and cheap uh, because that wins over any kind of great plan, I believe. Uh, at least I believed it at that time. I got, we got it, took the convertible. Dick Mayo, I got to go with us. And we've talked about him before. Uh, the architect, and there was a new guy at Manly who wanted to go named Reed. Gary and I got in my car and we drove up the uh, Richardson Highway uh, to Valdez. Have you driven to Valdez, Clark? Yeah, I went there twice, um, once uh, 10 years ago and once uh, seven years ago. What an incredible drive. It is. And when you go through Keystone, I don't know, were the waterfalls still spilling on the road? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> well, Dick was in the back seat. We have the top down. And he, he saw these waterfalls, but there was a quite dramatic one. And you can hear him hyperventilate for miles when he saw that. It's just so loud. And anyway, I, I, I swerved around it and but I made him think we we're going to drive under it, and it was greatly relieved. But anyway, we went down the hill into Valdez. It was it's a good drive there, and it was late afternoon, I think, by the time we got there, and evening tide was coming in, and I was shocked that that pier that we actually went to when I earlier 1959 was gone. Yeah, the tsunami was, wiped everything out, right? Yes. And the water was up, you know, you had to kind of walk up a hill to get there, but it was in further toward the main drag through town. Because all and the land were, had sunk? Uh, yes, it was. And there were buildings still standing. Uh, I was surprised because I thought it wiped it down out. But there were a lot that weren't and a lot of collapses and a lot of heaps of materials around. So anyway, we found Walker's house, and before we walked in, um, there was this conversation between us where you have to endure each other's assessment of who would be the most influential of getting this done. <laughs> and it was incredible. There were four of us. One person says, well, it can't be Ralph. He doesn't, he looks like he doesn't know anything. <laughs> that was, that was what I was told. Great. And then uh, it, it was agreed that Reed Pay he no attention his... to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> yes. And then Reed had this great big wide face. Um, he's a nice person, but a wide face. And he looked older. And some people just look older uh, when they're in their 
20s. And he probably never looked young, and he probably bought beer when he was underage for everybody. <laughs> that was the kind of face he had. And he said, no, that's not going to work. He, he looks too old to have any ideas. <laughs> and then they looked at Dick. Dick, I've explained, is very quiet. He speaks, and when he speaks, he always says good things. But he's very lumbering, and he's not a person like me who just interjects ideas or things or gets words in edgewise. He he just kind of sucks on his pipe and, and listens and then comes up with great wisdom. And so the one who's the most dynamic and talks a lot and has really got a lot of ideas is Gary. And he's the one who put the whole thing together. And we decided that probably he was the best, but the problem is, is no one can understand what the heck he's saying half the time. It's, he was, he was out of London. And Clark, when you're around Gary, you have to both read lips and listen intently. I mean, a wonderful person. I, uh, we were friends for years. And, uh, but it is just part and parcel with knowing him. We went into the meeting, the four of us, and there were a gathering of the people there in their little house, which was a living room with a pretty good-sized dining room that opened into the living room, and people were stuck around in all kinds of chairs, and there was a Corps of Engineer representative there, which we didn't know was going to be there. So anyway, we decided that we'd start talking. Gary got up there and he talked about the beauty of Valdez and its built heritage. And um, some of it was wiped out actually, those beautiful little mail order houses that they had, uh, I think were gone. One thing he addressed was the plan that the Corps of Engineers is going to uh, have. He talked and talked and talked about it. and. I don't know if you've seen, and it was implemented, Clark, but it's a, it, it, it has kind of like a, a main drag, and then it has all these streets that go out to dead ends from the main backbone. And when you look at it, it does look like a rib cage. Of course, at that time, the um, idea was that they could do moment frame buildings that were very quick, very cheap, and readdress what was lost in downtown Valdez, which makes sense actually, but aesthetically, architects can't accept that. But anyway, we talked and talked and talked and talked and we did our very best and it was difficult to even make any headway into that. And the government representative was there, he countered us and there was this, immediate money, they had a ready plan, the city needed places to be, and outside, Clark, water was coming into the streets as we spoke. And who would listen to broke, barely experienced and experienced, unregistered and hopeful architects? We, we the weakest force there. It was a fun evening, I'll tell you. It's too bad you didn't prevail because... Um... You know, the, the town that's there, it's it, it's okay, I guess, but it's kind of like there isn't any um, high-density streets or anything, any concentration, you know. It's just all sort of like strung out with little uh, one- and two-story buildings and lots of parking and big, wide streets and, 
you know, it's just it's just not very inspiring, I guess, except for the scenery. The scenery is actually one thing the Valdez has. It, it's it's Switzerlander. Uh, I, I don't know if you've been there, but uh, there is this these little villages that have these slopes that are just major that uh, just come down into the town and the waterfalls and things. It is a gorgeous uh, area of the world and. And it, it comes close to that, except the way people treat Alaska, the way they build there, it's always a kind of a helter-skelter sort of a thing uh, of need. And there's never, uh, when you go to uh, like Switzerland, there is, it isn't actually everyone adheres to the same architecture, but they do address the need for sloping roofs and uh, heavy snows and they all have adapted the same idea how to withstand the climate. And in Anchorage, in my experience has been basically Anchorage, no one really likes to address um, the climate or the light or anything. But that's one thing that is you can appreciate uh, in uh, Switzerland. And uh, Valdez has that Swiss quality about it. And when you go there, I haven't really felt that any other place. Maybe Juneau might have it, but uh, I haven't spent a lot of time other than in government buildings there. Or Cordova, perhaps. I haven't been there. Well, uh, it's. I'm not trying to say that everyone should go there, but I'm always interested in how people address climate with buildings, because I spent a lot of time trying to do that. I was never... Uh, all that successful either, but had a lot of theories and got a chance to try them out. They have conventions there in Valdez. They have a convention center, and um, the, there's various annual conventions. There's a theater convention that's been going on for a long time, and a uh, museum convention, statewide museums. Do they have fairly good hotels? or They're okay. You know, there there's like one that's a little bit better than the others, and the others are, you know, they're all right. I can remember staying in Valdez in 1959, and the hotel was uh, kind of like the one in Seward. But uh, they in the bar, they this bar was incredible. That was there. It was carved, covered the wall, a huge wall, tall wall, wide wall, and uh, I I will never forget. Somebody in the boat had a flashlight. And they went right up to it with a flashlight just to study the uh, carvings. It was so amazing to look at. Hmm. Nice. Anyway, back in Anchorage, we did go back to Anchorage, and uh, Dick was making this noise again in the back seat of the convertible, and I drove under the waterfall and got us all wet. Top was down. <laughs> I'm not sure he ever forgave me for that because we were all soaked, but it looked like so much fun to do. Couldn't resist. <laughs> Could not resist that. When we got back um, up in the penthouse, there was um, always this owner who lived across in the penthouse. She'd see me in there working, and I always was in, up there working. So she'd walk across the courtyard covering a dish with a paper towel over it, and it was always cookies or rolls or something for me. And it was a great perk to have. She was a nice, nice lady. Then she'd, she'd leave. She'd 
tap on the glass. So I became like Pavlov's dog. I, I would hear that tapping, and I started salivating. <laughs> it was amazing. But uh, this happened many, several times while I was there. And anyway, um, uh, one Sunday I got up pretty early and went to work, and I was there all day. And But in the morning time, I heard, you, since we're up on the third floor, I heard this noise, and I uh, saw the owner in the penthouse and a little daughter with ski gear go across glass uh, to go down to their car. So I spent the day up there drafting and and uh, trying to get a bunch of work done. It was a gray day anyway and uh, toward late fall, like late falls are sometimes in Anchorage, uh, a lot of sticks, no leaves. I just didn't pay a heck of a lot of attention to anything uh, going on and I finally got tired late afternoon early evening and uh, left and the next day when I showed up in the morning on a Monday there was cop cars out in front of the building I went up to the office of Clark the uh, uh, Art Bunnell was there there were cops up there and they wanted to talk to me. I said, why do you want to talk to me? And they said, well, uh, were you here all day yesterday? And I said, sure, I, I must have left there maybe 5.30, 6 o'clock. They said that this lady, uh, Martha, in the penthouse had shot herself while I was there in the afternoon. And uh, I had seen her while I was working. She came out in the courtyard, but she didn't have a dish with a cover over it. And she got right to the middle of the courtyard and she, it was gray, and she lifted her arms straight out from her sides with her palms up. And she made a 306 or 60 degree turn, 360, looking up at the sky. And then she put her arms back down and went back inside. And I saw this large glass panel slide. And that's the last I ever saw her. And I told that to the police. So I don't know what in the heck was going on. But that was creepy. They never questioned me any further because I certainly didn't do anything <laughs> for her demise. But that was uh, one experience that um, really was creepy in my life. It's a good Anchorage story. I think we've all, like, that, that have lived here for years on end, um, run into people like that just by chance. And um, they... they um, I don't know. Do they arrive here by some process? It, it's a it's an end of the roadism or something, you know. They're they're driven out of uh, other places just because uh, they don't kind of fit in. Could be. I, I've I've often speculating here, but <laughs> I think I'm heard right Clark people analyze Anchorage people uh, that it was people who couldn't get along in the South Forty Eight or something. Right. But I don't think that's true because I had a lot of clients that were just f so with it and they just love the country. They loved being there. They loved its assets and, uh, and they certainly weren't refugees from anything. They just wanted to be in Anchorage. That kind of changed after the quake. I think people came up there for opportunity. It was a chance to get on the ground floor of a growth of a city. I believe that that was a driving force, but still I do think that uh, having known many people in Anchorage, that there was an element of what you're saying, that uh, uh, 
maybe try, people trying to find themselves. I had some friends like that, and they were in deep in alcohol and, and unhappy people. But anyway, here's a person that isn't happy. I got a call from this person who said she had been recommended to have me as her architect. Her name was Elizabeth. When you look at her, Elizabeth always had an elegance to it. This woman was had a lot of gentleness to it, but she was, if you looked at her, she embodied what you would call a female whack, woman's army corps, I mean, colonel. She just had that bearing. And she had the most decisive powers. They were fast, clear, and comprehensive. She was a great thinker. I found that out in just talking to her very slightly and, and later as, as a client. And she wanted, with her husband Oscar, they wanted a kind of interesting, they liked the farm buildings in Idaho. I don't know if you remember that in the Palouse, but they liked their direct utility, but their beauty at the same time. And, you know, they're the like barns and sheds and um, they had really no gothic gym cracks or anything on them, but they had beautiful lines. Do you remember any of that when you were in that country or you were too young? Only from um, uh, talking to you about it. And I think in one of the very early episodes we did, uh, you went through that some. Oh, I did. It oh, was okay. a, it was a trip you took with uh, the Dean of the architecture school or something, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, the university of Idaho is right in the Palouse and uh, when you're there, but I, the Dean of Architecture, we went down to Stanford and places. Um, but anyway, back might to the have, farm. Might have been a different trip. Yeah, yeah it yeah. could have been. Yeah. But the these farm buildings are beautiful. And uh, they they love them. And, I, and so I got the idea they wanted form and simple uh, lines. And so they picked me up one Sunday morning and they <clears throat> drove me to um, past Turnigan's devastation where all those houses fell, where all the trees were at an angle uh, that had been switched around in the quake and the land fell. And they drove way beyond that, I think, toward Warren's off, uh, which is a point out there by the airport. takes a tour of earthquake damage in Anchorage's Turnigan neighborhood in our third segment, Dear Listeners, and he begins work for two other clients whose Turnigan houses were destroyed by the big quake. But there was land that we looked at 
for most of the day, and it was very dramatic. And I had this idea of the tidy and smallish, and we were looking at uh, places, you know, looking over the murky, dramatic waters and skies, and, and all of a sudden what that conjured in my head, and I had a hard time getting is multi-gabled roofs that kind of interlock with... <laughs> with what's overhead and I and you know they're like a haunted house or mystical lighthouses or something like that and it just was the antithesis of what you'd expect these people would want out there on that point anyway we walked a lot of properties and I heard listened to all their comments and as we got into it and I got to know them a little better well something did conjure in my head that I uh, felt was a, a possible direction for their home. But as we were driving back, Elizabeth turned around in the seat and she asked if I would mind if we drived on the rough work roads down there where Turnigan was fall, fell apart and uh, look at the damage and destruction. I said, heck no, I'd love to see that. And I just decided I keep my mouth shut. And she knew almost where everybody lived, knew whose house was who and what was what. And, and uh, it was an amazing uh, trip and uh, I could just read you a paragraph she she says as Oscar drives Elizabeth directs and comments I settle back and vow to myself to listen and keep my mouth still the tour is phenomenal Elizabeth knows places names to lots names the background to most damaged locations as with typical guide like a plum this was Rasmussen's house. He owns National Bank of Alaska, you know. Right there is where Heinz' house was. And she kind of drops off, interrupting. My mouth won't stay still. I met that guy the first day I was in Anchorage. Elizabeth stays on task. What remains of Atwood's place is a pile over there. My goodness, that once was a wonderful log home. And then the work road turns a new direction. Where Meads were two boys died. Oh, dear going on around to a part of an intact structure almost on its side. That's a salvage bedroom section of Lil Thomas Jr.'s. The name strikes inner desire how I'd love to design their new home. I grew up watching Lil Thomas travel logs at movie houses. This chaos is depressing, realizing Turnigan people lived orderly lives here with a semblance of security that was wiped out in minutes. Elizabeth stops talking, turns with a look underlining that I'd better heed what she's about to say. Security is confidence within yourself to produce funds when you need them. And that little guy in my head registers a respectful, yes, sir. <laughs> and that was, I will tell you, that sentence has played over in my mind many, many times, <laughs> Clark, in my sojourn in life where I have been out there, hanging out there financially. Yeah, I think I understand what she's saying. Pretty sound advice. I think so it is. And uh, she was really uh, quite a wonderful client. The house was not built. I can't even remember. I may have it in logs why the it was abandoned, but I got pretty far with it. We put on top of it kind of a glassed uh, lighthouse look to it, which that site that they had seemed to suggest. They loved it. And she liked to grow plants, too. And it had a front uh, green area that faced um, the south where she could plant. And, and it integrated into kind of a 
another mullion design like I did at Meads that she liked. She had seen that house, and uh, it it was it was a nice place. And I often think that it would have been a great to have that standing out there on that point. It didn't make it. After working with the Von Roars, I did make a design which I thought would really be suitable for the site that they finally selected. It did have kind of a lighthouse top to it and had a greenhouse front, a couple of stories, where they could have plants in there facing the south, and it was all glassed. And it was a kind of a beautiful idea. Unfortunately, it was not built. But I still look at the designs now and then. I still have them uh, in my files. Anyway, the first spring that I was in Anchorage, uh, there was this man, Rod Wilson, who appeared in magazines across the country for his heroism, heroism, uh, for saving people's lives on a winter mountain climbing saga on Mount McKinley. And these photos of him on magazines, he had high mountain oxygen gear that you couldn't really tell who he was, made him unrecognizable. But certainly his name and uh, his fame uh, grew from uh, this episode. Uh, Paul Cruz was the engineer uh, in Anchorage for many years, and I think his wife owned Designcraft as well. Betty was on that climb with Rod. There were some, I think, uh, German climbers with them. And Cora had impressed upon me, and she was the choral director that I first met when I was in Anchorage who um, had, uh, I don't know, you probably don't remember this, but she had the L Street apartment that we watched the sunset over dinner. Uh, she told me about Rod Wilson at that time, that he was just brilliant. And she always would repeat what she said, makes a point, just brilliant. And she had this sideways stare down that she did. I call it the evil eye flegal something. <laughs> but anyway, she impressed upon me Rod Wilson was someone that I should go to if I needed a doctor, and I made an appointment with him. We hit it off. I first met him there, and I met his wife when I went to Gibney's uh, apartment over the Chichaco Bar. She had come to visit uh, John Gibney to say goodbye because they were good friends uh, in the Great Books Club. And so I knew both of them fairly early in my life in Anchorage. But Rod called me. Uh, and said that they needed to build a home away from downtown Bluffs. And he lived, I would say, like on 8th, somewhere in a modest house. I had an office just west of him on a point that looked down over Bootlegger's Cove for some years there. It was two-story, and I renovated the house uh, for an office. It was one of the most wonderful offices I've had in my life. Uh, the only trouble is it was too small, but uh, it was a great place to be for if you have to work as hard as I did. He impressed upon me that they had lived, he took his family of five children to Morocco, and they had lived there for one year because he wanted his children to have the experience of living in a foreign country. And they would take excursions across the strait to, to Portugal, to Gibraltar there. They would buy tiles and they collected rugs and collected uh, lanterns that were just put in storage for the time they would build a house. 
and they pressed, impressed upon me they wanted their house to have the Moorish mistake inside and out. They loved, uh, in Norway, where they had traveled as well, the medieval wood stave churches. And are you familiar with them, uh, Clark? They, they look stacked, uh, very much like a pagoda or something on top of each other. They're high and they're wood shingled, but they love those. So they wanted me to combine all of that into their home. Uh, plus, they had children who loved to put on plays and they wanted a theater as well where they could do that. And that's qu quite a quite a thing to work into a house. But uh, anyway, they bought property that was um, uh, right across the street from Kickbushes out there at Tanina. People aren't really doing Moorish style any any longer. Well, this was a, a this was a take on Moorish. It was the house that climbed the hill, and I think you've been in it, where people were out on the roofs and it had a swimming pool on it. Do you remember that on a tour? Yeah, out there at Tanina, it had was shingled. A, it was the one that was kind of at the end of the road. Yes, and and people were all over the roofs and up in the crow's nest and all that stuff. That was their house. Mm -hmm. It had stairs. It climbed a hill. The house uh, inside. For them, it was an extremely successful house. It it actually, you entered the lot, the, the property, which was five acres in the center, uh, and then it would rise slightly up on the north side. When you got to the top, you had a view of McKinley, which people thought was uh, a real attribute to any house in Anchorage. It was uh, had front stairs and back stairs, and it had a lot of mystique to it. It was fun to do. And of course, it was one of those where I had, I was able to get a contractor that loved my work and would work with me as I developed the drawings. And I loved doing that because we didn't get into trouble. Uh, and uh, he actually built the house, as many houses that I did, which enabled me not to, uh, I used to get into some real battles with people who just couldn't, who built one way their whole life and anything that deviated from that one way was never right. Yeah, they didn't even really want to understand it. No, they didn't. And in fact, uh, on one house, and we'll get this into this later, and I see we only have about five minutes left, but I, I had a model built that we could take apart and it was stick by stick, everything, because I knew that this contractor that these people insisted on using could not understand the drawings because I'd been through some projects with him before. He just couldn't. He built one house for everybody in the old days in Anchorage, and it was all the same house. You can go from house to house to house. It's the same thing, and that's the way he did things. He was a nice, nice person. Uh, we got along really fine, but we did get into trouble with him. Uh, he just would fall back into his old ways and not follow guidelines that were right there and very clear. But we, we did this house that we could deconstruct and then put back together. And it was amazing and expensive to have that done. I still have parts of that in storage somewhere. But anyway, Clark, I took it to these clients. It, 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 this is not the Wilsons, this is someone later on uh, down the road. But I took this model to these people and I said, now look what I have here. And he says, we didn't tell you to do that. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, but it's done. And I've done it because you insisted on this contractor. And I want everyone to understand how this house goes together. And they were mad at me. And I took it apart. And they said, well, put it back together and take it away. And that's, that's so you never know. You have clients who love you and clients who hate you no matter what you do. But this was a fa fascinating thing to do. And uh, I kept that around. I know it's in storage someplace, but I kept that thing around because it was so unique. I've never seen anything like it. So that one must have been in the unbuilt category? No, it was built. It was a terrible experience too, but it got built. And you've been in it. Hmm. Yes, you have. I know you have because I was there with you. <laughs> I didn't know who you were, but I know you were there. Yeah. The Thomases had very close friends, mountain climbing friends, and they were so fascinating. I remember my little wish that I'd love to do Low Thomas Jr.'s house. Yep. They called me up. See, sometimes <laughs> I saw a movie with Josh Lucas the other night. I don't know if you know him or even watch movies, but I always enjoyed him as an actor. In this movie, he was he had these philosophies like that. You you have to know where you're going in order to get anywhere, or if you want something, you got to know what it is. <laughs> It'll come to you. And I thought, you know, that's me. I it just is. I go back through my life. But anyway, the Thomases called me, and I love them, and they were good friends of the Wilsons. They're just great people, and they're both dead now, and you've been in their house as well. Uh, it joined Wilsons um, to the north. It was a home where it also had very specific things that they wanted. They made films in those days. When I was doing their house, I can remember them being in Australia uh, with film people and then coming back with the film people to their home when they had a soiree there that I got to meet all these Australians and things. But they were so fascinating and got to meet uh, Lowell Thomas Sr. and uh, got to meet her parents. Uh, he was the, uh, he headed Pan American Airlines then and, uh, and just all these wonderful people. There were other celebrities like that that visited them. Uh, one was the Rockefeller that was a, is a um, conservationist. He did Jackson Lake Lodge. I almost have his name, but I can't remember which one it is. But he was always a, a renegade to the Rockefellers. But uh, he visited there. There was just this continual parade of people <laughs> that you hear about that there were there all the time. And just nice people. The thing that they wanted for their home was to be able to show their movies, to have people there. Uh, they needed privacy uh, where they could talk business, but she didn't want conference rooms. She wanted what she called just a small parlor. And she said, this is where people can come to the house and they can go into there and we can isolate them from the family. Uh, then she says, this parlor has got to attach to a place where Lowell could meet with people and then they can go then he can go on into his office beyond that and that really dictated how the house was and then she says I want to bring that three-bedroom unit from the wreckage at Turnigan and put it onto this house and is there anything else <laughs> you know, all these these givens start coming into my life and so 
this house became a very unique thing to design. We did bring that to that site, the three bedroom. I added sliver additions onto the side because those rooms were too small. But I used, Clark, the geometry of that addition to spring off the addition that I was doing for their new home, which had like the roofs on that were like Jap, like a inverted Japanese fan. If you ever, if you remember, it was folded, uh, or you may not even recall that, but it had like 22 triangular pieces that made up that roof. And of course, snow was coming, and they were worried about getting into it. And I had met this person named Pete Builder in Linwood, Washington, who did prefabricated houses. And this is going to take more than this. Uh, podcast to talk to you about and there's photographs all kinds of stuff of this stuff but we got a crane out there and we put this roof up complicated roof up in a day with before the snow came and uh it's it's a fascinating saga of construction and you did all that with the contractor who uh, didn't think it ought to be done that way at all yes i did (laughs) that's great Well, I I do kind of vaguely remember um, walking through that house. And I think part of the problem that I have at this point is that uh, those two houses were next to each other. And so they were stops on the same tour. And in my mind, I kind of conflate the two, you know, and so I don't remember. But I I do remember standing in the Thomas's house and you saying that uh, this part of the house was a standard ranch out in Turnigan and you could kind of see it. But you wouldn't necessarily have known it without it being pointed out because it was, you know, integrated into something new and different and bigger and much better. Well, in podcast, I guess it will be 15. We will continue on because I have a lot of photographs of this. When you put together this podcast, Clark, uh, 14, I will send you a lot of stuff uh, which will interest you and I think make, make this series quite interesting. There is more about Ralph's life and projects at his website, artechdivisions.com. My website is frame-ak.com. We'll return one of these days with a fresh episode and pick up where we left off here. This was episode 14 of Alley Audio Vision, recorded December 22, 2021. So long, dear friends. <laughs>